I don't know, it seems like I may have gotten shorter since the last time I came up. <laughs> Thanks for praying. Um, I think dying is not easy. It is an intensely emotional experience, often painful, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. I think this poem by Sir Thomas Brown summarizes it well. Sir Thomas Brown is a physician and he is a Christian and he wrote one of the classic texts in medical literature. And he has this to say, with what strife and pains we come into the world, we know not. But it is commonly no easy matter to get out of it. And because of the pain and the fear of death, we reflexly avoid talking about death. In fact, I think some of you here may even consider talking about death as taboo. That is something that will bring us bad luck. According to a study that has been commissioned by the Lien Foundation here in Singapore, only half of the Singaporeans have talked about death or dying with their loved ones. And among those more than 60 years old, even less, around maybe 40%. So I hope really that at the end of this sermon and the end of today, uh, this would not be the case for PBH, that we would really go back and talk about these issues with our loved ones because it has been well shown by the medical fraternity that discussions about death, about living and dying between the patient and the family are critical towards providing compassionate and quality care for patients near the end of their lives. When we avoid having these so-called dialogues, I think it's a really a pun on the you know, dialogue, these dialogues, we find ourselves unprepared to handle the challenges associated with dying, whether our own or that of our loved ones. And so that's why we are talking about dying today because these dialogues help us live more meaningfully. They help us prepare ourselves to help others in their time of need. And when our own time comes, to leave this earth peacefully. I want to introduce you to this lady, Dame Cicely Saunders. Remarkable woman, remarkable doctor, who has cared for many patients. She is best known for starting the modern hospice movement and she established the first purpose-built hospice in the world in 1967 to meet the physical, the social, the psychological as well as the spiritual needs of the dying and of their families. She was also a Christian who committed her life to serving God and she sees dying not as something to be feared but as a spiritual event that can bring meaning to life and at a time when there is an opportunity for reconciliation between one another as well as with God. And she defines good death as one in which the body becomes weaker but the spirit becomes stronger echoing really 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our outer self becomes weaker, 
the spirit becomes stronger and the inner self is renewed day by day. You see, that last phase of life is not really about dying, but living to the fullest in the midst of our pain and of our suffering. It is a time when the spirit can grow stronger even as our physical body weakens. It can be a time of profound meaning and growth for the person dying and for those taking care of him or her. The inner self or the spirit in us can be renewed day by day in the midst of our pain and suffering. And I think this is what dying well is about. So what steps can we take to die well? I w- we will do this in two parts, as Pastor has introduced. Ben will do the first part. He will share of his experience caring for patients who are dying and what he has learned from them and what it means to be living fully and being there for those in their pain and suffering. And then in the second part, I will take a step back and I will discuss how we can live fully, how we can live wisely so that we can die well. And I will focus our thoughts and our reflection this morning on Psalm 90. I'm so glad that uh, we started this morning with Psalm 90. I didn't tell Kevin that I was going to speak about Psalm 90. And I think this is... uh, And he read Psalm 90 and we prayed over Psalm 90. And I think uh, this is an example of how uh, God leads us as a people, uh, as His people. So before I ask Ben to come up and share... I just have a few words of introduction of Ben, right? I mean, as a father, you better introduce your son properly, right? (laughs) Ben is an excellent doctor and a teacher who works in NUH. Uh, He has chosen to subspecialize in palliative medicine, which is uh, a a specialty in medicine that focuses on caring for the dying. Every time, I think Ben or myself, when we tell people what he wants to specialize, they say, wow, that's the first. Uh, Because everybody recognizes that uh, specializing in something like this uh, uh, takes a lot on you. And not everybody uh, can do it. But I think, uh, you know, when when Ben first told me that he wanted to do this, my jaw also dropped. (laughs) Uh, Because... uh, I know how difficult and how challenging it is for somebody who wants to do, uh, who specialize in caring for the dying. Um, But um, I have, uh, I think that he's really somebody who has chosen the right path. Uh, As a person, he is someone who has a big, big heart. And uh, as myself, as a father, and uh, Grace, both of us as parents, uh, we cannot be any more proud uh, than we are of, of Ben. And I hope that you are too as well because Ben is literally grew up here in PPH. Uh, he went to kindergarten here. So this is a call out for our kindergarten. Uh, okay. Uh, why are you not sending your children here? <laughs> anyway, uh, he went to Sunday school here, youth here, uh, young adults here, got married here, raising a family here. Right? And uh, you have sowed so much into his life. 
And I think uh, this is uh, someone whom I hope uh, you'll be proud of as well. So Ben, please uh, come and talk to us. Thanks, Daddy. <laughs> yeah, so good morning, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm actually very thankful for the opportunity to be able to share something that's uh, very, very close to my heart. Um, I thought that I would start today by sharing the story of uh, Stephen. Okay, so some of us may have seen his story in the Straits Times recently or uh, online on Yahoo as well. So, Stephen was someone who was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer of the bile ducts at the age of 51, and he recorded a series of videos on his YouTube channel. Uh, I didn't put up any of his videos today, but um, those of us who are interested, uh, he, goes, he goes under the username, the YouTube username, Stephen Says. Okay, so he, he recorded a series of videos where he was sharing his, his uh, experiences and thoughts about death, he, he called himself a death coach and he uh, sought to increase awareness and to reduce the stigma around uh, death and dying. Um, I actually saw Stephen as a patient at several points of his journey and I wanted to use what he went through to illustrate just a little bit about the experience of uh, someone who's dying. So Stephen actually grew up in a single parent family. Uh, his life sounds like you could have come out of a drama serial. Uh. He, he dropped out of school at 15, a year before he did his O-levels. Um, he worked at um, A&W, you know, last time there was A&W. Uh, but he actually did really well. Although he was there something at like 15 or 16, within six months he was promoted to a supervisor. He, um, he subsequently went on to do his NS with the police force. Again, he did really well because he's, he's got this certain uh, streetwise and he's very good at uh, what he does uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, he enjoyed himself so much that he intended to sign on with the police force. But um, unfortunately, he was turned down by the police force because of his lack of qualifications. So that marked a turning point for him. That got him thinking. And uh, he decided to turn his life around. He, he went on a fast-track course after that to complete his O-levels. He, um, he did a diploma in marketing a degree after that. And he even did a master's. Uh, all by the age of 28. And this was all while basically working various jobs to support himself through his uh, education. So subsequently, he worked in various different lines. Uh, he eventually established his own company called uh, Step Up International. It was a retail and trade marketing consultancy firm. He got married. He f became the father of four children. And his job basically allowed him to travel all around the world. So... Um, Many people would have thought he has, a, you know, he had a, he he basically uh, had a perfect, some sort of perfect life la, after that. So the story um, goes that in December of last year, he started to experience some tummy pain. He also noticed that the skin and his eyes were turning uh, yellow. So after he went through a scan, a scope, and uh, one major surgery as well he received the bad news that uh, he had stage 4 cancer of the bowel ducts. He was given uh, one year to live by the doctors after that. So I want, us to, um, I want to bring us 
a little bit into the head and the heart of someone who's been diagnosed with um, terminal cancer, someone who's suddenly out of nowhere confronted with his own impending death. You know, Stephen was very much a self-made man. Uh, by all accounts, you know, he had started with almost nothing, he had, uh, to, and he had struggled on his own to succeed despite his very humble beginnings. Now, in the short span of a few weeks, he was faced with the prospect of losing everything. You know, his savings were going to be drained because of all the medical expenses. Uh, he knew that over the coming months, his condition was going to deteriorate. He would lose his uh, independence. Uh, but I think most of all, he knew that um, he would eventually lose his life, meaning that uh, everything that he had struggled to build with his own two hands would soon amount to nothingness. So, you know, for someone who had always succeeded on his own strength, to have control abruptly wrested from him like this, uh, I thought it was something like a plane, you know, the pilot of a plane whose wings suddenly just broke off. Or, or the captain of a ship whose engine just failed and the, plane, the, the ship just started to sink. You know, the questions that would have been running through his head, uh, if you can imagine, would be something like, um, um, uh, why me? You know, why, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, does anyone really understand what I'm going through? Uh, how much more pain am I going to undergo? And after I go, what's going to wait for me on the other side? And I think if we begin, begin to consider these questions, we, we begin to appreciate just the tip of, of like, an, like an iceberg of suffering that uh, someone like that has to go through. Uh, I thought it was like an iceberg because, you know, when we think about it, it's like the tip of the iceberg that we see. But actually, there's, there's so much more that's underneath the surface of the water. And um, sometimes it's very, very difficult for us to appreciate just how much these people go through. So the pain that you know, people experience at the end of life is very, very real. Uh, physical suffering is one part of it, but actually the truth is modern medicine has come to a point where we have very, very good treatment uh, modalities available for the physical element, physical element of suffering. Sorry. Um, today, when I'm working in the hospital, I can actually tell my patients quite confidently you know, that um, I can make sure that they are physically comfortable until the end of their lives. But the other aspects of suffering are often much more difficult to address. You know, in palliative care, uh, we have this concept known as total pain. Total pain means that at the end of life, um, a patient's emotional and spiritual distress also contribute in a very real way to their suffering. At the point where someone realizes that he or she is dying, uh, it's often as if uh, their entire life suddenly comes to the fore, you know. Uh, everything that was achieved, every relationship that was built or destroyed or failed, uh, and more often than not, any distress that this person goes through has its roots in interpersonal relationships, something that was left unsaid, uh, some hurt that was left unresolved, or a wrong that was left unforgiven. And for someone to die well, uh, these other needs have to be met as well. So, you know, uh, the dying process is not only something that involves the person themselves. Uh, those who are dying uh, aren't the only ones that suffer. I think uh, many of us here have probably experienced the pain of um, losing a loved one. And for all of you, 
my, my heart really, really goes out to all of you because working in this line has uh, come to allow me to appreciate a little bit of how deep this pain can go. You know, when someone is dying, often it's the family members who suffer the most, I think. The, all of the same hows and the whys that we talked about earlier will also be going through your minds. Um, but in addition, there are often these additional thoughts, you know. Um, I, I wish I was the one who was suffering instead of him or her. Uh, could I have done something to, to pick up the illness earlier? Could I have done something to prevent this? And why didn't I uh, spend more time with him when he was well? And why didn't I get a chance to say goodbye? So, you know, when it comes to ministering to the dying patients and their families, um, it's important for us to note that every person's suffering, just like this total pain concept, is a unique experience born out of an interplay between the person's personality, uh, their spirituality, as well as uh, their circumstances. Because everybody's experience with suffering is different, unfortunately, there are often no real right things to say to somebody who is undergoing pain and suffering. You know, if I were to take on the role of someone who has been diagnosed with cancer and who's, um, who's now in pain and suffering, uh, I can give several examples of how something that is very right can sound very wrong to me, you know. So, for example, um, you could say to me, uh, I, I understand what you're going through, but I would just be thinking, no, you don't. And uh, you could be telling me, um, God can heal. But in my mind, I would just be thinking, um, but what if he doesn't? And um, you could also tell me, you know, things will be perfect again in heaven. But I would just think, uh, that doesn't change the pain that I'm experiencing now. Worse, I, I may even start to question my own faith when I find that I don't believe or I don't buy all of these things which I know are actually true. Right? So that being the case, uh, what can we do right, for these people who are struggling and who are suffering? I think that we need to meet these individuals uh, where they are rather than applying some template in terms of what to say and what to do for them. I, I think that because everyone's experience of suffering is different, uh, it starts with listening first rather than saying something to them. So I think it, rather than saying something at the outset, it actually starts with, um, tell me about how I can pray for you today. Or share with me what you're going through. What are you feeling today? When we take time to listen, I think we demonstrate that we care, even if we don't have all the answers. And often I think, I think there are no easy answers. But I think that the pain is made a little bit better in knowing that they aren't alone and that there is someone praying for them. You know, another thing about walking alongside those who are suffering, I think often we need to address our own fear of negative emotions. You know, just to, to share something about, when, when I first started um, in palliative care, one of the interesting things that I was, uh, one of the consultants shared with me, she called it um, the rule of tissue paper. So the rule of tissue paper, right? So, the, so you know, when, someone is, uh, when we're talking about something difficult, someone receives a, a bit of bad news that um, they've, they've got cancer, they've got a year to live, something like that. It's a difficult experience. And of course, often people start to cry. Right? So often our instinctive response, there can be two things, right? Some of us, uh, we have a, you know, because we, 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 feel, we feel uncomfortable, we tell them, uh, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. 
right? And the other thing we will do is we will, we will quickly go and uh, busy ourselves and look for some tissue and pull, pull out some tissue and pass it to them. So she said, um, actually, that's, not, that's often not so appropriate as the first thing to do when a person starts to cry. And why is that? Um, for someone who's going through pain and who's going through suffering, uh, the important thing to realize is that it's really okay to cry. Right? And sometimes we don't need to be afraid of negative emotions in that way because it's perfectly natural for them to feel that way and it's often good for them to express it as well. So when we tell someone, don't cry, um, it's something, sometimes it can come across in a way um, you shouldn't be feeling that way. And actually, they should. Uh, and it's good for them to be feeling that way. And um, similarly, you know, when we're ministering to those who are suffering, um, they may they may tell us thoughts that seem to be ungodly, right? Thoughts like, um, I, I feel like God doesn't care for me anymore. Or um, thoughts like, um, I wish I could just uh, end my life today. You know, I can't go through this anymore. But um, in such situations, similarly, it's it may also not be effective to um, tell them, no, 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 you shouldn't be feeling that way. Don't feel that way. Uh, reject those thoughts, you know, and something that... But I think something more effective is to ask them, why are you feeling that way? Tell me a little bit more. And I think that way we can walk alongside them just a bit better. So, you know, when I first met Stephen, uh, I was on attachment at that point in time with the hospital palliative care team. He was very frank and very honest in uh, sharing his thoughts with us. He told us uh, very uh, openly uh, that he plans to write a he plans to write a book. So, and he told us, um, half joking, I think that he was going to title the book uh, "I Am Dying, So Are You." Um, so, so we said, oh, okay, okay. So, unfortunately, towards the second half of the year, uh, his condition took a turn for the worse. And I actually happened to be covering the, the hospital ICU at that point in time, and I also saw him in the ICU. Uh, basically, he developed a series of bad infections uh, because of his blocked uh, bowel ducts. And knowing that time was uh, shorter than expected at that point in time, he, he again jokingly told me, uh, I think my book is going to have, become, have to become a booklet. So uh, he, he said, um, but still... Uh, so working against, uh, working with the short time that he had and during those short periods when he had the energy, basically he filmed that series of videos which I talked about at the start. He literally did it in uh, most of them in selfie style, uh, filming himself in, uh, mostly in fact on his hospital bed. So he, um, and after, his, his, uh, after he passed on, uh, just a, a couple of months back, um, his story actually almost, uh, you could say, went viral. I mean, his story was published first on the National Cancer Institute of Singapore uh, website, then on uh, Yahoo News, and then finally in the Straits Times, which was the article we put up in front. So in many ways, uh, I think he succeeded in his goal of making his voice heard for better awareness of, uh, and better acceptance of end-of-life issues. So I think Stephen's story is really an example of a bad situation made good. Uh, how... Just like uh, this Dame Cicely Saunders shared, how despite a very bad situation, it was turned around and he found meaning in the worst of his circumstances at the end of his life. Unfortunately, many of us uh, only realize uh, what's important towards the end of our lives. 
and uh, we are left playing something like catch up at that at that stage, trying to find meaning, you know, at that at that point, and often when time is very short. This is why the central message of what we want to share today is that dying well is really not about dying, but it's about living and living life to the fullest, uh, the life that Jesus came that we may have. Um, I think living life to the fullest is really a life that is lived with the realization that our time on earth is short. And when this drives us to live our lives for what really matters. And I think for us, the advantage we have is that what matters is actually abundantly clear. And that is to love God and to be loved by Him and to live our lives uh, and to do the work that He has called us to do. So at this point, I, I just like to... Um, it's a bit of a, a plug, but um, just to share something that's um, called uh, Advanced Care Planning, or ACP. So I'm not sure how many of us have heard of this concept before. Um, ACP is uh, actually something about healthcare preferences. It's about sharing with one another uh, between, um, between uh, those that we love, with those that we love, about our healthcare preferences uh, it involves a series of questions and discussions where we talk about what's important to us. And um, it's about, um, basically, it's letting others know what's important to you so that if one day we lose the ability to communicate or we become uh, unable to talk about it, uh, we can, uh, these other people that we've talked to can help to reflect the things that matter to us, to the medical teams that's, that are looking after us. So I'm just going to show, show a few quick slides of the, of the ACP uh, workbook, um, just so we have an um, introduction to it. The, I, I've also left a few a, a small stack of brochures outside for this ACP, so later those of us who are interested can go and pick up a brochure. There's, there's a stack of them that are, that's in English, and also a small stack that's in Chinese as well. So um, this is the, the what to do. Uh, for the ACP. Basically, it just um, in terms of who can do ACP, the general thinking nowadays is uh, anyone can do ACP. And in fact, um, we encourage ACP to be done when we are healthy, when we are well, even before uh, any diseases set in. Because that way, we can talk about what's important uh, in a less sort of threatening setting, in a less um, urgent sort of setting as well. So when we think about it, when we think that it's something important, um, we choose a few of our loved ones to have this discussion and then we put our wishes into a plan. The plan is basically according to a workbook which I'm going to show you. It, it has a very structured sort of um, discussion topics for us to share with each other about these things. And finally, to um, all of this is... Um, so some of us may have heard of you know things like a LPA and uh, all this legal framework and things like that. ACP is nothing like that. So it's uh, not a, any legal document. It can be changed at any point in time. And it's, it's purely a means of sharing with one another, with those that we love, what's important, so that they can help to, they can understand this a bit better. They can reflect this to the medical people when the time is, uh, is right. So the ACP workbook looks a, a bit like that. Um, there's a, it, it comes in a workbook like that. This, this, um, is available in PDF format on the ACP website, which is uh, www.livingmatters.sg. So we can see, um, okay, the, I know the words are a little bit small. Basically, it goes through a few categories, my relationships, my lifestyle, my religion. Uh, what are the things that matter very much to me? And what are the things that um, 
uh, are most important. Subsequently, it goes on to talk about things like that. So uh, basically, it says here that what are my greatest fears and worries when it comes to having a serious illness? Uh, and that way, I-, I can tell you for sure that um, having something like this filled up, uh, when it comes to managing a person's uh, medical conditions, it makes it a lot, uh, a lot easier and a lot more meaningful. And I feel that I can center my treatment around what's most important to um, the patient. Right? So... Um, Okay, so go, before I hand the time back to my, to my dad, I just want to end off with this part. Because um, as I was preparing for this, this is really the... Maybe I can consider the main thing that I felt God was laying on my heart. I think for us, you know, to talk about dying without a mention of heaven is like a story that is missing the final chapter. I think that uh, in eternity we will find all the answers that we cannot find today. And I think that this is the single place where all of the brokenness and the pain that we see on earth today will be made beautiful again. I just want to share one of the major struggles I had when I started to practice medicine. And uh, that was actually regarding God's victory over sickness and death. Because I knew in my head, you know, that um, God is a God who loves us. And uh, God is a God who heals, who has victory over sickness, right? But um, I struggled because every day when I came to work, I saw, you know, rows and rows of, of patients that were going through so much pain and so much suffering. And a lot of them, I, I knew that I was going to treat them this time, but they're still going to come back again and they're still going to get sick again. And many times, in fact, my patients were Christians, you know, they would share with me that I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying to get well, and I know God can heal me. And many times I would be praying for them as well, to get well. But, but in a lot of cases, this never happened. So I, I struggled and I had no answers to the questions that often trouble many of us as well, I believe. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people, you know? How does God's love come into the picture when this 18-year-old boy is diagnosed with terminal cancer and when he passes on before he even gets a chance to, to live his life. But as I continue to practice, I think the Holy Spirit has begun to place a measure of peace on my heart. And I believe the, the answer is somewhere here. Where that, In fact, I, I don't believe I received all the answers at all. I, I still don't think I have the answers to all these questions. But I believe that God still has victory over sickness and death just that I believe that his victory will be made complete in heaven. And now, you know, when I go to work and when I see patients like that and when I see all this suffering, I still feel all of this ugliness very acutely. But, but all of this pain and suffering now just makes heaven all the more beautiful to me. And actually, that's part of the reason why I opted to go into this, um, into this line. Because when I see patients and when I get the chance to, to minister to them, I believe that, that God called me to the dying patients. And when I see what they're going through, it also is something that makes heaven all the more beautiful to me. So to conclude this segment, I think if I can say one line, it's just that I believe there is no dying well apart from Jesus. And I also think dying well is not really about dying uh, but it's about living. 
And it's about living our lives, the lives that God has called us to live uh, for the things which really matter. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to pass the time back to my dad, uh, who's going to share with us about living well so that we can die well. Thanks, Ben. So the question now for us is, what really matters, right? What matters in our life? And I think this is a good uh, point to just turn your Bibles with me because we're going to keep very close to Psalm 90 uh, for the rest of the time that we have. Psalm 90, uh, and I'm reading from the ESV. It's a prayer of Moses. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And this is the lesson of Psalm 90. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favour of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90 highlights three aspects of our life. First, life is temporal. We are not going to be here forever. Verse 3, you return men to dust. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Secondly, life is short. We will not be here for long. Like grass, verse 5 and 6, that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. That's how short life is. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. But they are soon gone, and we fly away. And the third thing that Moses tells us about life is that life is troublesome. And he highlights two big troubles of our life. First, the trouble brought on by our sin in the face of God's wrath. 
Verse 7, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The second trouble is that associated is the troubles associated with living. Just the fact that we, we, we are alive, there are troubles that we have to deal with. Verse 10, their span is but toil and trouble. Our work is burdensome. There is pain and suffering that we will all experience in the course of our lives. And so the key lesson then for us in Psalm 90, the key reflection, response of our lives is for us to number our days. Moses asked God to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. To number our days is to be mindful of our mortality, to be mindful that life is temporal, that life is short, that life is troublesome. And Moses teaches us that when we are mindful of our mortality, then we gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, that mindfulness should spur us towards living wisely. How? Neville Ward is a Methodist minister and it's this to say about death. Death helps us to see what is worth trusting and loving and what is a waste of time. So mind, being mindful of our mortality then spurs us to live for what truly matters. Because being mindful of our mortality makes life more precious, helps us to desire heaven more, spurs us to make time, most, the most of the time that we have been given. And I think that is living wisely. So the question is, what should matter most to us? In a word, God. And this is the call of Psalm 90. The call of Psalm 90 is to make God our eternal home and to live fully for Him. Verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever You have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Home is where our heart is. And our heart is the place for our affections, where our hopes and our dreams reside. Therefore, the call to make God our eternal home is a call to place our ultimate affections, our ultimate hope and dreams on God, not on this earth. So in light of our mortality, where life is temporal, where life is short, where life is burdensome, we therefore turn to God and we put our hope in God and we live fully for God. Because in God, our mortality is transformed into immortality because He is God from everlasting to everlasting. In our sins are forgiven through Jesus so that there is now no longer God's wrath that we have to deal with. Instead, we find love and we find peace. And in God, we experience peace in the midst of our troubles, even though we may not have all the answers. Because in God, we have the hope 
that one day all the brokenness that we experience and that we see around us will be made whole again. So we put our hope in God and we live fully for God. How can we do that? I summarize it as living a life of love. Let me explain what I mean. It begins with a daily experience of God's love. In other words, love is experienced daily. Moses asked God to satisfy us every morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And I think this is the key to the renewal and the strengthening of the inner man by growing deeper in our experience of God's love. This is what it means for us to overcome troubles of our lives with God's love. This is what transforms our mourning into dancing and clothes us with gladness instead of sackcloths. We daily experience the witness of the Holy Spirit with our own spirit that we are children of God, loved by the Heavenly Father. So start each morning reflecting on God's love in your life and then respond to Him in grateful thanks. Because gratitude prepares our hearts to experience God's love in deeper ways, makes us more thankful and sensitive to the many and varied ways by which God expresses His love to us through the day. The beautiful sunrise, the beauty of creation, the strength and grace that God gives us to work, the food that we have to enjoy, the family and the community that God has given to us, all these are God's expressions are expressions of God's love and that we can receive with grateful hearts. There's a lot of interest nowadays in living mindfully, isn't it? Mindfulness is where we are taught to be present and mindful of the present, living in the moment, as it were. And there is good data to support the use of this practice in enhancing mental health and performance. But for me, what is more powerful is to live our lives mindful of God's love towards us daily. Secular mindfulness benefits mental health, but spiritual mindfulness of God's presence and God's love in our lives strengthens and benefits spiritual lives and spiritual health. So begin each morning with God's love and then live in the awareness of God's love through the day and then end each day with God's love. Flowing from that experience of God's love, then with gratitude in our hearts, we serve God. We live fully for God. We gladly, as Moses says, become His servants. And this is the natural response of a heart that has truly been touched by God's love. Love is expressed in service. And a great example of this, I think, is Jennifer Hing's life. And those of you who were here last week would have heard her inspiring story, isn't it? How her experience of God's love lifted her from the valley of despondency, really, to the heights of delight. And how she then decided to commit her life to serve God, whatever it is that God wants her to do, even though it was something that may have to open up wounds in her own life. Moses knew well the heart of God. He knows that God has chosen to do His work 
on earth through us, through human beings, even though God really does not need to do so. After all, God can do all things, right? He was the one who brought forth the mountains and formed the world, all done without our help. But God desires to work through us, His servants, so that He may show His glory and His power to us for our benefit. That's why Moses prayed to God that your work, Lord, show us your work, show your work to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God desires to establish the work of our hands as an affirmation of His love towards us. Love is affirmed tangibly. So that is why Moses prayed twice for God to establish the work of our hands. The establishment of the work of our hands is a tangible affirmation of God's love and favour, of God's love and mercy towards His people. And again, the testimony of Jennifer Hing's life was such an encouragement because God is establishing the work of her hands in a way that showed God's love, God's power, and God's glory because Jennifer by herself cannot have accomplished all that she, that she shared with us last week. And so these three aspects of living a life of love are interconnected and they form a virtuous cycle of ever-deepening relationship or love with God, which leads us right to the heart of God. When we sight our inner man then in the heart of God, that's what it means to make God our home, our dwelling place. And it is at that place that our mortality then is transformed into immortality, and there is no longer any fear of death. The outer self may waste away, but the inner self is renewed and strengthened by God's love in the firm hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So let me try and summarize where we are. Our mortality, mindfulness of our mortality, must drive us to put our hope in God and to live fully for Him, because that is what really matters. And we do that by living a life of love that leads us right to the heart of God. And in that place, we experience God's love and peace that strengthens faith and hope. Living a life of love also means living, leaving a legacy of love to those around us, especially to the people closest to us. Ira Bjork is a palliative physician who has cared for countless patients during their final stages of life. And in his book, The Four Things That Matter Most, and I highly recommend this book for you to read, where he shares what he learned from his patients. And it's this, that when life hangs in the balance, what's foremost on our minds, always involve the people we love, those who mean the most to us. The relationships that we have with the people who are closest to us, our family, our friends, matter a lot. And Dr. Bjork has condensed into four short sentences, just 11 words, 
the core wisdom of what people who are dying have taught him about how we can complete and celebrate our relationships. And these are the four statements. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. These four sentences help us to leave a legacy of love to those around us, especially to the people who are closest to us, because they get at the core of what healthy relationships are all about. It is a celebration of gratitude, of forgiveness, and of love. And these words help us to connect deeper with people who mean the most to us. These are very simple sentences, but sometimes they are not so easy to say. We feel awkward when saying something like, I love you to another person, isn't it? We say, ah, they should know, you know. But Ira Bjork advises us, when you love someone, it is never too soon to say, I love you, or premature to say, thank you, or to ask for forgiveness. So, if you have not expressed gratitude and love to the people who are most important to you, to those closest to you, do it today. All right? Don't assume that they should know. Life is fragile. We are only a heartbeat away from death. So don't wait until it's too late or you regret it. But sometimes, the most difficult of all these sentences to say may be that concerning forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness and forgiving others. No family is perfect, but there are families that carry a legacy of unhealthy and damaging emotional patterns down the generations. Instead of leaving a legacy of love, we blindly pass down destructive emotional behaviours to the generations after them. Parents treat a child in a way, creates hurt feelings, not resolved, and then the child carries that hurt and bitterness throughout her life, and subconsciously that hurts the child in such a way that brings out behaviours that perpetuates that legacy of hurt, bitterness, and destructive emotional behaviours. And the only way to break that is forgiveness, because only through forgiveness can we experience healing and we can become whole again. Forgiving others puts you in that place to experience forgiveness yourself, and that is transformational. I like this quote from Ira Bliok. Forgiveness is a passage to a sanctuary of wholeness, that nurturing place where we feel intimately connected to the people who matter most to us. So go to this place of transformation. Forgive be open-handed and forgive those who have hurt you, especially your family members and especially those who are closest to you. Let me conclude. I started by saying that dying is not easy, and for most of us, quite scary. But we can face our death with fortitude and faith rather than fear when we put our hope in God and we anchor our lives in God's love by serving Him wholeheartedly and then leaving a, a legacy of love to those who are closest to us. Ben started with the story of Stephen Giam, and I want to end with another story of a young man to try and get into the heart and the mind of somebody who is dying, but also so that 
we can reflect how we can be there for people like that, how we can care for them, how we can walk with them, because in doing so, it's one of the most powerful expressions of the kind of compassion and love that God wants us to show to one another and what it means to live a life of love. And because there is potential meaning and transformation in that final stage of life that we can help facilitate. And because when you walk with somebody like that through their final stages, we ourselves get transformed and we find renewed meaning and purpose for our own life. David Tasmer was a Polish Jew who, fed, who fled the Warsaw Ghetto soon after World War II. And he arrived alone in London as a refugee. He worked as a waiter, saved some money, but before he could really enjoy the fruits of his labour, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer when he was less than 40 years old. He was alone and in a new place. So he was admitted to a London hospital. That's okay. That's life. <laughs> so he was admitted to a London hospital during the last weeks of life. And it was there that he met Cicely Saunders, who was at that time working as a medical social worker. They developed a close friendship during the last weeks of his life. Cicely visited him often, comforted him by reciting Bible passages to him, like Psalm 23. And they discussed how patients who were dying could receive better overall care not just physical management, but also holistically. And it was during those discussions that the concept of building a home or a hospice dedicated to the care of the dying was birthed. David wrote a poem, and I want to read that to you, before he died. Only 40 years old, no one to leave, nothing done for good or ill, or ill, for the world to remember. A leaf floats down the river and is lost forever, no trace left behind. Someone comes to listen. I find I have something to say. I remember a child in Warsaw, the rabbi, my grandfather, calls me down from bed, makes me talk far into the night, search out the ways of God. Somehow, in the years between, I lost all thoughts of God and I never found myself. In the busy ward, I come to the end of life. I find a friend who offers mind and heart. A window opens and gently the God of my fathers calls me home. Now only I begin. So I will leave a window. Who will look through it and find there his own starting point. It was David who inspired Cecily Saunders to dedicate her life to caring for the dying. He left her all his money, <clears throat> 500 pounds of it, so that he can be a window in her home that she was going to build, dedicated to the care of the dying. After David Tasma's death, Cecily Saunders went to medical school. She was a medical social worker. And she became a doctor at the age of 39 years old. 
and she established St. Christopher's Hospice in 1967, dedicated to the holistic care of the dying, where her motto, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the last moment of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. She dedicated a window in St. Christopher's to David's memory. And she had this to say of David, her impact, of his impact in her life. It took me 19 years to build a home around that window. But the core principles of our approach were born out of my conversations with him as he was dying. Today, St. Christopher's welcomes 6,000 patients and trains more than 50,000 healthcare workers every year. And Cecily Saunders is credited as being the pioneer of modern hospice movement. You see, there are many David Tasmas in this world dying alone. And there is a little bit of David Tasma in all of us. At the end of our lives, we may look back and we may wonder, what have we done? We may feel that there is nothing for good or ill, and we feel insignificant, like a leaf floating down the river to be lost in the vastness of the sea forever. So the message for us this morning is this. Live fully for what really matters. Put your hope in God and serve Him wholeheartedly, living a life of love and then leaving a legacy of love. And the challenge for us is this. Can we be like Cicely Saunders to offer mind and heart as a friend to be present with someone in the midst of their pain and suffering, to help open up that window in their souls so that they can begin to make their journey back home to God. And who knows what meaning and purpose that may bring to your own lives as David Tasma did, brought to Cicely Saunders' life. Let us close in prayer. <clears throat> I want to focus this time of prayer and response on the word peace. And the first group of people I want to pray for are those who have yet to experience peace in their lives. Peace of sins forgiven by God. In Psalm 90, Moses lamented how sins, our sins evoke God's wrath. As long as we have sins, Unforgiven, we cannot have peace with God. And so, if you have not sought forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, today is the time to do it. And let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus has died for us on the cross. Thank you that through Him, we can experience the forgiveness of peace of sins, and we can have peace in our lives and in our hearts. And so, Father, we want to pray. We want to ask you, Lord, to forgive our sins so that we can begin this relationship of love with you and that we may experience peace in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus has done for me. 
forgive my sins in Jesus' name. If you have done that, please let somebody know so that we can continue to help you build and develop this relationship of love with Jesus. The second group I want to pray for are those who have unforgiveness in their hearts, unresolved hurts and bitterness. I want to pray for you so that you can release these hurts and bitterness, especially if they are concerning those with whom you are close to and those who are important in your lives. Heavenly Father, we want to pray that you will overwhelm us with love and gratitude in our hearts for the forgiveness of sins that we have experienced, that the forgiveness of sins that's available to us through Jesus, and that we can experience your love in such great depth that we can now forgive those also who have hurt us. So Lord, we want to commit these hurts and bitterness to you. We release them to you. We ask that you will make us whole again. We pray that you will fill our hearts with love. And we pray, God, that we would learn to enjoy and celebrate these relationships that you have given to us, those with our loved ones, with our parents, with our children, with our siblings, with our friends, with brothers and sisters that you have given us in this community of faith. Lord, we release those bitterness, we release those hurts, and we ask you, Lord, for love and forgiveness and for strength to do that. And finally, I want to pray for all of us that we would live for what really matters, that there may be peace, as it were, in our work, in the things that we are occupying ourselves with. It's the house that we are building, the house that God wants to build. It's the city that we are standing guard over as watchmen, the city that God wants to watch over. Because unless our work is aligned to God, we work in vain. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that this contemplation and reflection on mortality, on the limiting on the limited time that we have that you have given to us on earth is so precious. And Father, we want to place our hopes in you and we want to live fully for you because this is what really matters. And so Father, we want to pray that you will open our eyes to your work so that we can align our lives to what you are doing. Give us that strength, give us that courage to make the changes that shifts in our lives that are necessary so that we can align and we can serve you. And as we do that, I pray, Father, that you will show us your power and your glory so that our faith can be strengthened and so that we can grow deeper in love with you. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and may his make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and may He turn His face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless.